días que yo me muera, sé que tendrás que llorar. Eric Mann, the host of Voices from the Frontlines. Been working with Ernesto Arce on this show on so many levels. We're very proud of what we're about to do today. The first is a fund drive for our favorite station, KPFK. You call 818-985-5735, and we'll be explaining the premiums, but you can call them now and start giving them money. We're going to do an interview, part three, with one friend and comrade, Mark Masaoka, the great organizer who's going to talk about his present thoughts about the movement. We're going to also have a conversation with Alan Minsky, another dear friend and comrade who is presently the executive director of Progressive Democrats of America. This week on the Revolutionary Symphony, Ernesto Arce will be introducing Fela Kute playing his song, Water No Get Enemy. We will also have Ernesto doing South Central Third World News. So it's a full show, moving in many ways towards a magazine. How I understand it, let's enjoy the program. So we're happy to have on the show an old friend and comrade, Alan Minsky, who was pivotal in at least 15 years of my experience at KPFK as the program director. It was always the interim program director. It was like, <laughs> maybe like in the Soviet <laughs> Union, you know, they don't know if, when you're going to be airbrushed out of the picture or something. Uh, <laughs> you know, a really prophetic partner for the, the voices helped us get the show started. I come in after all the shows and we would sit down and talk. We'd go online and Alan was just phenomenally responsive, critical to the morale of both Channing Martinez and myself. So Alan, really happy to have you on the voices <laughs> from the front line. Oh, it's great to be here. Really great to be here. So Alan, you finally left KPFK to join a new experiment called Progressive Democrats of America. There's several different reform democratic party initiatives Tell us where PDA is and then where it fits into the so-called Democratic Party progressive ecosphere. It was founded really by two guys, um, Tim Carpenter and a guy named Steve Cobble, and they met on the Jackson campaigns of the 80s. And they rendezvoused um, after uh, the invasion of Iraq uh, to um, work on Dennis Kucinich's campaign because it was the only real anti-war campaign in 2004. And Kucinich stubbornly refused to drop out when other people dropped out and acquiesced to Kerry, who was running as a hawk, uh, won, the, won the nomination. And so um, in central Massachusetts, the weekend of the, of the Democratic National Committee, which, you know, those things are run Monday through Thursday. So it was the weekend after they founded an organization called Progressive Democrats of America in Massachusetts. And um, at the time, the left progressive faction of the Democratic Party was very weak. Very few people who were inside Congress or held any state legislator or state assembly seats, very few people on city councils or mayors would be advocating, at least openly, for anything like the, say, Sanders campaign policies of 2016. You know, Kucinich and, and uh, someone like Wellstone, they came close to those policies, but 
you know, if you look at what they stood for, they didn't really aggressively lay it out like Bernie did. Of course, they didn't say they were socialists either. Um, and, um, and so, but what happened then is that it did become the organization that sort of spearheaded growth in certain regions of the country more than others of a progressive uh, wing of the party. I worked on the Jesse Jackson campaign in 1984 as a state labor director with Maxine Waters, and I worked in 1988. So I think it's great that PDA, I didn't know that, had its roots in the Jackson campaign because I don't think to this day people understood how profoundly successful that insurgency was. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And tragically, um, Tim Carpenter was the public figure of the organization, the executive director. Steve Cobble, the other partner, was a more behind-the-scenes guy. Uh, Steve died uh, this year uh, suddenly um, from an asthma attack. He lived in Texas when Texas was freezing because of the grid uh, collapse in Texas. And, um, and it was about a day, a day and a half after the electricity came on in the middle of the night, Steve had an asthma attack. And I think, you know, something about the pharmacies not really being open and operating because of the grid situation played into his death. And he was the ghostwriter on Jesse's uh, autobiography that he's been working on. But the thing they were doing, though, Carpenter and Cobble, they, you know, they grew to a considerable degree up, up until 2014. Uh, Carpenter had cancer and he died in 2014. In 2013, they made the decision to launch the Run Bernie Run campaign, the sole national organization to call on Sanders to run. And they were a voice in the wilderness all the way through till. Uh, some point in the first half of 2015, there was no other national organizations joined them. And uh, when Tim Carpenter died in 2014, Bernie came and spoke at his memorial service in Massachusetts. And that was one of two events that Bernie pointed to, to really inspire him not only to run, but to run as a Democrat. And that was significant because Bernie was thinking about running as an independent or even as a green. Ralph Nader was saying, you know, sure, they'll hate you, but you'll at least get to have your vision of America out in front of the people all the way through to Election Day. If you run as a Democrat, by the end of the Iowa caucuses, you're going to be knocked out, forgotten about, and it'll be over. And, of course, it didn't play out that way. And PDA was the organization that drafted Bernie to run. There is a bit of a story around why not Warren. Everybody was trying to draft Warren at the time. I think part of it was a Carpenter was in Massachusetts, and you knew the only reason Warren was leaving the door open was in case either Hillary Clinton had bad health or she got indicted or something like that, that Warren did not have uh, the Constitution to go up against the presumptive first woman nominee of the Democratic Party. At least she was intimidated by the Clintons. So that's why they liked Bernie as much or more than Warren, and they started to run Bernie Run. Um, unfortunately for PDA as an organization then, uh, Tim dies, and Tim really was so much the face of the organization and um, had Tim been around, um, Tim was very forceful about PDA and uh, the, what would serve the organization well. So I do believe that had Tim lived um, and he'd done a little restructuring to set things up in the right way, since I don't think the organization our revolution would exist, it would be PDA. But because Tim had died and the organization was sort of drifting uh, at, at the end of the 2016 election cycle, that didn't happen. Sanders set up his own organization called Our Revolution. But we partner with them. And what we do then is to try to move the party substantially to the left. First of all, I think we both agree that there's no comparison. I mean, Bernie Sanders is light years different and better than Elizabeth Warren. So thank God that happened. I always thought he should run the Democratic Party. 
for a lot of reasons, third parties are not the way the system is structured. And forcing your way into the primaries and forcing the conversation inside the Democratic Party, because in my opinion, unfortunately, we live in a one-party state, and that is the Democrats in the liberal part of the world. So I think becoming a tendency inside the Democratic Party was the right move for Bernie. And I think for all of us, or at least for me, he certainly outperformed any historical expectations. You know, big, big props to him. So where did you fit in? By 2016, were you working with Bernie Sanders? What was the role of PDA to Bernie Sanders by 2016? Yeah, PDA was the organization by a substantial margin that had more um, Bernie Sanders delegates at the convention in Philadelphia. Uh, there still exists a, a group called the Bernie Delegates Network, which is the combined group of people who were elected to the national um, Democratic conventions in 2016 and 2020. Uh, and, and PDA has a um, uh, guaranteed position on the steering committee of that group. Um, you know, though, Tim, again, as I said, Tim, Tim Carpenter, the, the organization was so especially at the national level and up on Capitol Hill, really thought of as, as Tim being the central character. And they made, they made a great hire for ED. It was a woman, Donna Smith. She's now the chair of our advisory board, who was featured in the film Sicko by Michael Moore. But as somebody featured in the film Sicko, Donna had an incredible amount of health problems, and uh, she couldn't really stick with the job the way she needed to. The organization really drifted. I was asked to apply when the person they had hired to be the next executive director, who had been a, a climate advisor to the 2016 Sanders campaign, along with Bill McKibben, he was selected for the job, and then he didn't take it. And coincidentally, I was working on developing a podcast subject of the climate emergency that he was going to host, and I was counseling him on the development of that podcast. We were meeting for lunch you know, every week, every other week at that point. He told me he was selected to be the next CD. I thought, well, that's great. And then he told me one day that he wasn't going to take it, and he asked if I would apply. I said no. <laughs> <laughs> and then, then, so this tells you when it was, AOC beat Joe Crowley. And I called him up, and I said, hey, that job you mentioned, is this, has it been filled yet? And because they'd gone through the proper hiring process when they selected him and hadn't shut it down, I sort of was considered in the vacuum as a candidate. And I ended up getting hired. One thing you showed is that there's a lot of shocking human developments around health. And, you know, two of the three people you discussed have passed on. And one of the people was physically unable to do the job. I've had a lot of my own health battles. And right now I'm in particularly good shape in my own mind, but for all those reasons, they were very lucky to get you. And I mean that. And um, sometimes it's just being the right person at the right time. One of the bonds we've had is that we really like raising money for KPFK. And you have to like it mm -hmm. in order to do it. For $100, we offer one of the most important books. It's called Playbook for Progressives, The 16 Qualities of a Successful Organizer by me, Eric Mann. And it's really a great book about organizing and the personality and psychology of being a successful anybody. And the second one, which I like even better, is the Paul Robeson Portrait of an Artist. 
the four DVD set of my true hero in life, Paul Robeson. It's an amazing set, and that you get for $250. And then the other level, give what you can. Call 818-985-5735. 818-985-5735. Alan, we've done this so many times. Number one, how do you find the energy to keep believing in as I do? And why don't you tell our listeners why they should give to KPFK? First and foremost, they should give to KPFK is because the interview that we're in the midst of right now, for me, there's almost this kind of paradox of the political practice I'm involved in and then my analysis and understanding of the world. One of the things I really appreciate about the work of Labor Community Strategy Center, Bus Riders Union, Eric in general, Voices from the Frontlines, and KPFK by extension, starting with, we're going to have an honest understanding of what the society is about. We're going to turn a blind eye to nothing, okay? There's going to be some hard truths that people may have a difficult time digesting, but this is the realities of this society, and we're not going to get anywhere unless we absorb all this and understand it, and then we're going to try to take action to change things and uh, talk to the people who are doing that, the voices from the front lines. (laughs) What can I possibly describe in media that would be more worth endorsing and supporting with funds? It's a very complex society we live in. And, um, you know, there's a lot of people who want to hear part, partial truths about the way the society operates, the history uh, that led us to this place in this society, let alone the difficulty of transforming it in an honest assessment of what we're up against and trying to transform it. I want to say something about Playbook for Progressives. What Eric said is absolutely true. That's a, that's a marvelous book. And I think we're going into a phase of history where, uh, yes, there's a lot of uh, intelligent psychology that can be applied to any aspect of life. But uh, organizing, understanding what it means to be an organizer, that's important. There's going to be a lot of moments going forward in, in our society where people are going to wonder, why can't we get something done to improve this? And, you, and if you have this book, you'll realize... Well, there is something that I can do to get it done, which is talk to the people I know and get them organized. And this is just an absolutely great book on that. It's a $100 donation for Playbook for Progressives. $100 pledge at 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK. Well, that means a lot what you said, and it's really true. I just had a morning conversation with Barbara Lott Holland and Chatting Martinez, who are my Right now, we sort of become one person with three parts. And today, I had a moment of despair. And I just said, you know, the country is moving towards fascism. The United States is moving towards invading China, of all things, claiming China is carrying out genocide when you have a million black people in prison, the nerve of you, Joe Biden. And the movement's not where it was when I got involved. It's not. And... I had to sort of apologize to Channing and Barbara, although we often do this, to say, you know, there's some days you just want to look in the damn historical mirror and start with what's true. Now, from there, we are organizers. We don't despair, but there are moments of despair for me. Mm -hmm. And then you get over that. You say, all right, that's all interesting, but we have to get the Jews out of the concentration camps, and we got to get the black people out of prison, and we have to stop the saturation bombing of Vietnam, and we have to stop the efforts to overthrow Venezuela, and that's what gets me going in the morning, but 
sometimes I forgot the exact words you used, but to have a willingness to look at the complete truth first. Mm-hmm. And it's not depressing. It has its moments. But then you look, if you're a surgeon, you have to look at the reality of what the problem is before you come up with a strategy and tactics to solve it. And I appreciate what you just said, Al. It means a lot. And I think you're bringing the same thinking to your job. That's the point. If you're the director, people don't want right now hollow inspirational speeches. They want an assessment of the situation first. And then they want a plan that makes real sense to them. Say, if this is the situation and this is the balance of forces, this is my best shot at the next one, two, three, four, five steps we have to make that honestly offers some hope to all of us. That's mm-hmm. what I do, call the Strategy Center. That's what we love, KPFK, 818-985-5735, because KPFK is part of the strategy. I mean, how can progressive Democrats in America, where else can Alan Minsky go and be Alan Minsky? <laughs> I mean, really, to yeah. be the soul yeah. that I know you are, where can Eric Mann go? Voices from the front lines. If you like this show, if you like people on the front lines talking at a level of honesty and introspection and sense of humor and irony, like Mark Masaoka, one of the great organizers, who you're also hearing on this show, please give money to Pacifica, 818-985-5735. Plus, we have a new general manager, and he wakes up and says, oh, I have a great new job, and then he looks at the books and goes, oh, my God, we need to raise a lot more money. So for Miguel and for Alan and me, for Ernesto, for Channing and Barbara, 818-985-5735. Please give $100 and you'll get a copy of Playbook for Progressives, $250 for Portrait of the Artist, and any amount of money that makes you feel good and makes you within what you're capable of doing. So Alan Minsky. Executive Director of Progressive Democrats of America. We know the Biden-Harris team is in serious crisis. We know that Trump is on the horizon. He's not only making a comeback, he already has made a comeback. The forces of the armed right, not just the right, are on the ascendancy. When you wake up in the morning, what's the plan for Progressive Democrats of America inside that historical context? It's a very tricky thing right now because... Um, the uh, midterms are ahead. You know, there's the immediate practical work that we're doing, all of it in the service, again, of moving the Democratic Party to uh, the left, where it would be aligned with the public policy positions that are supported by its base. And then, of course, I'm open to pushing past that to, uh, you know, a more equitable, more just uh, structures than, than are even on the table from what the base currently supports. Look, there are huge uh, structural barriers to achieving that with the Democratic Party. You have a whole generation, about 25 years of Democratic Party elected officials across the whole country who got into the game, so to speak, as neoliberals. (laughs) You know, success as a neoliberal politician, it seems like the compact was you serve finance capital and its control of the organization of society. And in turn, you get really rich. That's not the agreement that we're operating on. We're not trying to elect people who secret aspiration, let alone their public aspiration is to be on a whole bunch of yachts 
you know, with elites having parties, we're looking for people who just want to live a middle-class life and serve the interests of the people on the planet and how to achieve that. And there are a lot of barriers, but there are 19 Democrats who have resigned from the house, about 15 of those seats. We can move further to the left. We have some rotten democratic incumbents at the federal level that we can knock out with progressives. Nevertheless, the current situation is in the midterm elections then, when we have this opportunity to have progressives win, to get more Rashida Tlaibs, to get more AOCs, to get more Jamal Bowman. Jamal Bowman, by the way, among the real solid left progressives in Congress is probably the one who really needs to be defended most in this cycle. There could be others that get challenged, but he has a tricky district. You'll probably see about that in the future, folks, and people should pay attention to yes. re-electing Jamal Bowman from the North Bronx. But to get more people uh, with that kind of framing. So what does that take? That doesn't only take winning at the district level. I think accenting the clear difference between the left progressives and the moderates is tantamount as we move into January and February. So a different vision of American society, one that's broadly social democratic, one that wouldn't collapse the economy, that would not be a winning hand right now. This is not a frontal assault on the, the structures of you know, private enterprise and even the market, so to speak, but obviously to create something where public expenditures in the left, state, left hand of the state is expanded. You get a lot of money that can be freed up by limiting the right hand of the state, um, you know, think the military uh, budget, to propose that vision to the American people so that this very wealthy country that we live in with terrible wealth distribution can have it distributed more equally. And we can do what our society is very able to do, have the best schools in the world, the best healthcare in the world, but the structures have to be changed as to how those things are organized, present a vision to the American people that that's what we stand for as progressives. Neoliberals in the Democratic Party are essentially conservatives. They're trying to preserve the status quo of the last four decades. The Republican are a reactionary, racist political formation. So you have the reactionaries, the conservatives, and the progressives paint a vision of what we would want to build from where we are now. We can go further from the platform that we'll build, but to build a platform for a better the society that we all can embrace, obviously one more in harmony with the planet, one that meaningfully addresses structural racism, racism in society, not just gives lip service to it and addresses those uh, the aspects of social organization that have always facilitated the continuation of that in America, to be serious about what it means to dismantle the carceral state. I agree with all that, obviously. Are you worried about the rightward trend? How do you build the left in the age of right? Do you believe that you can set the terms of the debate if you don't win certain times, do you believe honestly that you can set a left flag into the conversation? I know you need to do both. You need to win these seats and shape the debate. How do you solve that? Or how do you address that? There are some inherent advantages. We have, you know, in any, any political situation, you assess what your assets are and, and what you have to overcome. Clearly, among Americans 45 and under, the left progressive so would just win. Either they're not going to turn out or they're going to vote for us. Not inspired by the neoliberal Democrats. And fortunately, not that many are uh, in the far right wing. Uh, I mean, we're talking about the whole mass population in the United States. So there's obviously the issue of motivating that population to vote. Joe Biden said that there will 
be no extension of the moratorium on student debt payments, and that will expire on January 31st. It's almost just like, here, let's throw away the youth vote. Unbelievable. The progressives have to make clear, you know, thank you, Joe Biden, for working with us on these, you know, huge omnibus bills. There was some real cooperation there for a while, and, and then then you started to suspect he really wasn't going to try to lift up what we were, we were on to see in it. But that's not really for general public consumption, though I'm over the airwaves here. But on student debt, <laughs> we make clear, we are for this and they are for this. You're going to want to vote for Jessica Cisneros down in Texas 28, not Henry Cuellar. By the way, the one um, anti-choice member of the Democratic caucus in the House, saturated in fossil fuels. Um, so there's a number of cases where the, the choice is just about that stark. Let the American public know what we stand for, kind of society that we hope to build here. And, uh, and as opposed to the stagnancy, maintenance of our unequal social order with the moderate Democrats and something even more nightmarish that's almost inconceivable from the Republicans. It's nice to catch you in the middle of all your calls and meetings <laughs> to have a place where you can be more philosophical because I do think philosophy is key to strategy and then strategy is key to tactics and tactics are critical to your own making of commitments. I think we're very lucky to have you as the director of Progressive Democrats of America because within that, even that own coalition, because every organization is, I think you just bring some great politics to it. Uh, how do people reach you and how do people reach PDA? The best thing to do is to go to the website, pdamerica.org. I am Alan, A-L-A-N, at pdamerica.org. That's my email. It's great to uh, be here with you. And I hope those phone calls keep coming in for KPFK and Voices from the Front Lines. 818-985-5735. If you want to reach me, I'm Eric at Voices from the Frontlines. But focus on reaching out to Alan, who's done such a great job for us. Take good care. With the South Central Third World News, I'm Ernesto Arce with Voices from the Frontlines and news from South Central to the Global South. A Long Beach police officer has been suspended for his role in an investigation into racism and anti-gay remarks that was exposed over the summer. Officer Maxwell Schroeder exchanged offensive text messages with two Torrance police officers who themselves were under investigation for spray painting a swastika on an impounded vehicle. According to a LA Times investigation, the exchanges between the officers included remarks about gassing Jewish people, beating members of the LGBTQ community, and sending memes about yard signs that read no blacks. Los Angeles County District Attorney George Gascon says the entire ordeal and its connection to potentially many more officers is very troubling. This type of conduct obviously cannot be tolerated anywhere in our society, but it's really uh, concerning and saddening, to be honest with you, uh, coming from the people that are supposed to be protecting us. An additional 13 officers with the Torrance Police Department have been placed on administrative leave as a result of the probe that was prompted by an independent investigation by California Attorney General Rob Bonta. It came at the request of Torrance Police Chief Jeremiah Hart. But there's more still. Long Beach Police Chief Robert Luna says they're investigating Officer Schroeder's previous use of force complaints and arrest records. 
Copwatch South Bay members had an online discussion about several officers who have been suspended and that they were known on the street as Nazi cops. Another poster simply wrote, Google LASD gangs, a reference to the long list of L.A. County Sheriff and law enforcement secretive gangs whose initiation rituals included beating and shooting suspects of crimes. White power police gangs such as the Linwood Vikings have existed since at least the 1980s, targeting black and brown residents as well as colleagues who they deem traitors to the group. Amazon officials in Illinois are facing questions for not evacuating workers at one of its warehouses in Edwardsville that was severely damaged by a tornado that killed several workers. Local news reports say the area was expecting a direct hit from the natural disaster, yet dozens of workers were still on site at the location. At least 50 people are dead after tornadoes ripped through several states, including Arkansas, Illinois, Kentucky, Missouri, and Tennessee. One or more tornadoes slammed a 250-mile-long area in an unprecedented quad-state tornado. FEMA's search and rescue operations continue in the hardest-hit areas in Kentucky, where poverty-stricken neighborhoods bore the brunt of the tornado damage. The National Weather Service is looking into whether this was a single storm or a series of concurrent storms in the same area. At least 54 people died and 105 were injured after a major crash in southern Mexico involving a truck that was smuggling mostly Central American migrants towards the U.S. It was one of the worst migrant disasters in Mexico in recent history. It took place as the vehicle traveled north from Comitán, a town close to the Mexico-Guatemala border, with almost 200 people crammed into its container. Telesur broadcast shocking video footage of the crash site near Tuxtla Gutiérrez, capital of Chiapas state, as forensic officers surveyed a road scattered with lifeless bodies as survivors found themselves in confusion and despair. A reporter from Mexico's El Universal newspaper said injured parents could be heard trying to calm their panicked children, saying it was a scene of chaos and ruin. A British court has authorized the extradition of whistleblower and WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange to a U.S. prison. The judge's decision essentially rules that the U.S. has the right to prosecute and confine journalists for revealing CIA activities and crimes against humanity. Late last week, the High Court of Justice in London approved extraditing Assange to the United States. According to the High Court, the U.S. offers sufficient guarantees that Assange will not be subjected to harsh treatment known as special administrative measures while in its custody. Reporters Without Borders condemn the ruling. Rebecca Vincent is director of the group's International Campaigns Department. For us, this case is absolutely about journalism. Julian Assange has been targeted for his contributions to journalism for publishing information in the public interest. And the case that he might face in the U.S. is based purely on the fact that the U.S. Espionage Act does not have a public interest defense, uh, allowing them to bring this case against a publisher for the first time. So the implications that this could have for journalism around the world are really alarming. This, this will set a dangerous precedent for many years to come if there is not success in another step of an appeal. Assange's lawyer, Stella Morris, said it was categorically unfair to send her client to a country that had already tried to assassinate him. In a September 26 detailed investigation, it was revealed that discussions of assassinating Assange in London had occurred at the highest levels of the CIA and Trump White House, and that kill sketches and options had been drawn up on orders of Mike Pompeo, then CIA director. With the South Central Third World News segment of Voices from the Front Lines, I'm Ernesto Arce. Now back to Eric Mann and Chenning Martinez in the studio.
So, this is Eric Mann. You're on Voices from the Frontlines, your national movement building magazine. And as you know, we've been in this conversation with Mark Masaoka, very impressive and uh, mainly, I have a big slogan, all power to the long distance runners. And I think for young people today, again, I remember when people would come and work with the Labor Community Strategy Center and they would say, one guy asked me a good question. He said, what's the shortest amount of time that I could work here and feel like I made a real contribution? I said, five years. That five years is how long it'll take you to really know what you're doing, and then enough time to lay down some roots, and then enough time to figure out a campaign and be part of it. And then you could move on, and other people can take your place. But he stayed eight. But... We believe in that, you know what I mean, Mark? We believe in the length of time it takes. The Van Nuys campaign was a 12-year campaign. So in that context, uh, long-distance runner, where are you right now in your life? What's on your mind? Uh, we just finished the elections in Virginia. Um, what do you think about? What do you think about your own trajectory? And what do you think about the world? So there's, there's two sort of major commitments I have and then, then a bunch of uh, sidebar commitments. Okay. So I think the major commitments are is one to the Japanese-American community movement. I'm in a group called Nikkei Progressives, and we do support. We have about 30, you know, perhaps going up to 40 people who are involved, mostly getting involved after the Trump election. And we've done things like support for uh, immigrants at the border, you know, and working with the Inland Coalition for Immigrant Rights, Immigrant Justice. And so when they needed things like suitcases to help their people yeah. get back, we round up suitcases. We did a concert for them. We did, you know, we did a benefit for Black Lives Matter, um, selling meals that were from Japanese-American restaurants in Tokyo, so it supported... Uh, you know, we, we did a fundraiser for the New Georgia Project and Asian Americans Advancing Justice in, in, in Atlanta to help with the elections that they were facing. Um, so these are the kinds of, of activities which uh, engaged people. They were concrete. And um, and we you know and we, we built some we built some of our ranks with, with people getting involved with these issues. Um, we work on gentrification. No Tokyo and, and elsewhere, supporting uh, other struggles. Um, we're very involved with the black reparations movement, be, given the history of the Japanese Americans fighting for and winning reparations for the World War II incarceration. And so one of our members, well, Kathy, you know, was speaking in front of the House Judiciary Committee uh, hearings on black reparations. Because Kathy. of our Masaoka. Okay. Right. It's sort of where I think... I and we can make an impact and a difference, that's where I sort of see that real value. And so we've been doing work with reparations, even though there's not a very developed movement for black reparations here compared to the work that Black Lives Matter is doing around police uh, yeah. violence or, or even around like the Crenshaw, Crenshaw Mall, you know, and the, the, the terrific effort that was built to try to fight its being sold off. Um, so, so those are the activities, and I'm, you know, part of the leadership of that group. 
I mean, isn't it interesting that, you know, when we started the movement, people would say, I'm in a national inform organization like Japanese American or black. But the reason they called it national inform was they didn't mean that's all we care about. It just means we think our people are an oppressed people and there's some value in a progressive nationalism that can fight for everybody with based on internationalism. So it sounds like in some ways you're going back to your roots and carrying out the same basic politics you've done all your life. Is that accurate enough? Mm-hmm. And it's based upon what our fellow Japanese Americans feel about these issues, like the hatred against uh, the Arabs and Muslims. I mean, that just was so reminiscent of what we experienced. And so that's why, you know, we did a number, continue to do solidarity actions on that level. Um, so that's one thing. And the other thing is, as I'm active in uh, Democratic Socialists of America in the Los Angeles chapter, um, moderately active because there are people who are putting in 40 you know enormous amount of hours like we used to do yeah i don't put in that that level of commitment um but i'm involved in the the immigrant uh justice committee there and and have attended some of the the black liberation task force meetings and that's that's an issue the chapter is still struggling with and um and and i was part of a there's a there's a group within DSA called uh, Afro Socialists of Color, Afro Soch, and there's a study group that I was part of, led by um, Bill Fletcher and Jose Laluz, who had come out of you know another veteran who'd come out of the um, Puerto Rican Socialist Party, and so they were you know this is a group reading uh, Black Reconstruction, um, so I think those efforts are important to help develop uh, help to help DSA grapple with the issue of the fact that it's an overwhelmingly white, large, substantially college-educated uh, group of, of activists, not that different from what the left looked like, you know, 40 years ago. And I think, but there's, uh, but there's not a lot of organizational history, not a, not a historical memory. And so, you know, there are very, very few veteran activists of color in DSA. Quite a few white veteran activists, you know, who are in DSA, but, but very few of color. And so it's major formations, like, the, like all the people got together around the, the Chicano Moratorium. There may be 50 or 60 people at those meetings. Not a single DSA member was in there except, except for the right. Japanese-American me, you know. Right. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> So I mean that that's that's sort of the walls that, that exist and, and the challenges that I think DSA is, is 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 struggling with and I think the the organization does not know how to build long term relationships. Um, it's like uh, you know they the sort of solidarity seem as you know showing up at a Black Lives Matter rally, right. you know when they have it in a large park or. or um, but not understanding the kind of decades-long process of developing relationships. And so most of people's activity in DSA is around DSA committees and, and structures. 
And whereas in the league, we would have people go out and spend a great deal of time like with the Free South Africa movement right. or the Jesse Jackson campaign and spend very, very little in, in our own meetings. That's right. But because they were building ties and really helping, contributing with the available time, they, they were building that work. And those relationships existed for, for a long time so that even the, during the reparations work that we're doing now, on black reparations, some of the people that we worked with 40, well, 35 years ago, you lose touch, but you connect again, and they're working on the, the reparations work with us. So those are the kinds of relationships that we consciously built, and I don't think DSA really understands how to do that kind of relationship building because it's so focused on building DSA as an organization. You know that the Labor Community Strategy Center, of which I'm director, comes out of all the traditions you just mentioned. And one of our strengths, 32 years later, is we still have a bus riders union, 28 years. And the MTA still knows that the most significant group that's committed to bus riders is the bus riders union. And we're having some very good conversations with the new CEO, Stephanie Wiggins, who is a black woman, and who we've worked with already for seven years when she was deputy, and now she's the CEO. And she knows Barbara Lothow, and then she'll say, Barbara, you remember in the conversation we had four years ago when you tried to convince us to not call it fair enforcement, but to call it fair collection or something. I, I should, she knew it better than I did. But that she would reference a conversation we stay deep, and the young DSA people that are coming over to the strategy center, we are trying to influence them, as you are, in, in this. It's a different concept. Um, there's a stereotype that our communist groups focus mainly on being communist groups. And at first they did. You know, at first in the early stages, it was our group is better than your group. And very quickly, the... ATM and LRS lost interest in the other groups. Now, we didn't argue with them. We didn't write polemics. We built the mass movements. Everybody was asked to go into a factory or a community. We just opened up strategy and soul because I'm now back in the black community where my roots are as a Jew from New York. And uh, when we first opened it up, it's on 3546 Martin Luther King on the corner of Crenshaw. It was not in the best shape. Let's put it that way. And Michelle Pritchard, a good friend of mine from Liberty Hill, came over and she said, Eric, you're going back to your roots. And I said, yeah, I became a nonprofit director. I don't know how that happened. I want to become a, go back to being a community organizer. And that's what I'm doing now. Is I'm, you and I are now in South Central Los Angeles in a very cool move, uh, very cool space. So my point is that to the people in DSA, who I think are doing some very interesting stuff and bring some new energy, is I think the conversation you're trying to, the struggle you're having with them is, is DSA turning out organizers whose main commitment is to specific communities and long-term four, five, six year building base, fighting for the people, not mainly fighting to build DSA, although there's nothing wrong with also doing that, but getting immersed in the fight with the police to getting uh, the police out of the schools and stopping the ticketing of black passengers, or as you said, to get involved in the reparations movement. So prior to this 
interview, you and I talked about how when we try to talk about our roots, a lot of people think, oh, you're stuck in the past and you want me to hear your war stories. I think that's very condescending. And I think what we're saying to some of the young organizers is you're not organizers. You're not even bad organizers. You're not organizers. You're not building a base. And that is the lesson, among other things. The second thing I think the lesson is to bring new ideological ideas to communities, but be patient and work with people and listen to them and be influenced by them. So they say, we like these people. They're part of our community, you know? And if they have a new good idea, it gets carried out. So I think for those of you who are in DSA, I'll say this, that I knew when DSA was Michael Harrington, who was a vicious anti-communist, a white chauvinist, and every other thing I could tell you about. In that sense, I think they've come a long way. You know what I mean? But I think you're calling the right questions, which is, are they immersed in their own internal fight, or are they training organizers? And for those of you in DSA who want to learn how to be an organizer, come to the Labor Community Strategy Center and talk to Mark Masaoka. That's, I think, the question that has not even been adequately formulated as a question within DSA's conversations. Right. Well, you formulated it. Uh, you know, some people uh, have, have raised it and, and left, you know. Um, uh, so, so there's that kind of attrition that takes place, even from people um, who have been in the organization for far longer than I have. But there's encouraging signs. There's some maturing of the group. I mean, again, very few people who are now in DSA have more than, than uh, you know, f- four years' experience building an organization other than whatever things they might have done in, in college. So I think there's uh, um, prospects, but again, there's just a lot of it's a Big Ten organization, sure, know you know, that. different right. caucuses, and it's got its own peculiar culture in that respect. But I think that, you know, I, I'm committed to it because I think it's one of the few vehicles that has a chance to really become, to help build and broaden the U.S. left. Right. And I think that's got that, that's why, you know, I, I'm in it, and that's why I see other people in it or very actively supporting it. I read an interesting article by um, Bill Fletcher called The Modern Tecumseh and the Future of the U.S. Left. And it was in um, Monthly Review Online. He uses sort of the framework that Gramsci used about Machiavelli being the prince who tried to unify the city-states in Italy and uses that and then brings up to Tecumseh, who was the Shawnee leader who then tried to unify the Native American tribes against the settlers moving in, and uses that to talk about the task of building and uniting the left in the United States and, and, and that kind of a framework. And, and I think those are the good conversations that, that are not advancing far enough. Well, our mutual friend Bill Fletcher has worked so hard. I, I always... When I have Bill on the show, I said, boy, you have had a lot of bad experiences trying to get everybody to work together. But thank you, Bill, for you're always with the Black Radical Congress. With Bill is always trying to build the United Front. He's trying to get people to grasp a United Front against imperialism, United Front against capitalism. So that's a very nice way to end the show. We have our mutual friend, Bill Fletcher. 
So this is Eric Mann. You've been on Voices from the Frontlines, your national movement building magazine. This has been a long conversation with one of my, I think, dear friends and comrades, Mark Masaoka, who is still an important political thinker in the politics of certainly Los Angeles. And for those of you who don't know him, how can they reach you, Mark, if they wanted to just say hi? I can give you my email address. Are you okay to yeah, do that? Yeah, it's fine. So if you'd like to talk to Mark, which I do as often as I can, how can they reach you, Mark? It's at Mark, M-A-R-K-T, as in Tom, Masaoka, M-A-S-A-O-K-A. And you can call here, and, and, and the people here at the Strategy Center can also give you my contact information. Mark T. Masaoka at gmail.com. Okay, and this is Eric at Voices from the Frontlines, and there's always Channing at the strategycenter.org. Send everybody an email, really. Show that you're listening. Pay attention. Uh, go on our website, Voices from the Frontlines, and register on that site because you're going to get a weekly newsletter from us the day of the show that tells you what the show is going to be about and then you can turn on every tuesday at three you can also check us out on apple podcasts on spotify stitcher soundcloud and voices from the frontlines.com mark masoka as always a pleasure let's keep doing this thank you on today's edition of the Revolutionary Symphony, we're going to hear Afrobeat legend Fela Kuti and his 1975 hit Water No Get Enemy, a Yoruba proverb praising the power of nature. In his lyrics, which are part English, Pigeon, and Yoruba, Fela advises listeners to keep in harmony with nature so that you live a longer and wiser life. Most of his songs are politically militant takes on police and military abuse and the inequality of society, especially in the Western world. This political consciousness was inspired by his mother, Funmelayo Ransome Kuti, who was a feminist and political leader with various pan-African and communist organizations. Afrobeat is fellow's music, and this 10-minute adventure has the late great drummer Tony Allen leading us in a hypnotic vamp punctuated by fellow's pleading chorus. Enjoy.
Caio Goiz Tô pra perceber o milho maluco If you want cook soup, now what are you going to use? everybody. I want to thank Alan Minsky. I want to thank Mark Masaoka. I want to thank Fela Kute. I want to thank Vicente Fernandez. And I want to thank Ernesto Arce. And take good care of yourself. Gift money to KPFK. As I always say, it never gets old. All power to the people. And we'll see you next week on Voices. <laughs>